All right, everybody, welcome to today's show of the Solomon Investor Podcast. It's time to stop trusting the public markets and look to history's first trillionaire on how to build real, lasting wealth. Look, over the past 14 years, we've applied these exact principles in more than 300 plus transactions. Not one single investor has lost money. That trillionaire was King Solomon. We'll be sharing his wisdom on how to build wealth in a way that's translated for the 21st century investor. My name is Blake Templeton, and this is the Solomon Investor Podcast. And guys, today my guest is Grant Williams, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. He's the author of Things That Make You Go Hmm, and one of the most widely read financial newsletters in the business, and the host of the Grant Williams Podcast, Again, one of the most listened to podcasts in the business. And Grant is widely respected as a visionary in the financial industry with a career spanning 35 years as an investor, advisor, writer, and interviewer. And during that time, he's had the opportunity to live and work in in seven major financial centers from London to Sydney. And now he's joining us from the Cayman Islands. And uh, through that time, he's been able to build, uh, build an incredible network with many others that uh, most people uh, only dream to be able to network with. And um, Grant's been a leader in all those industries, and we're so excited to have him join the show. And uh, Grant, super excited to dive in to your history. And um, for everyone listening, as Grant and I were visiting right before we got started, I told Grant, one of the things that I love most about him is his ability to uh, dissect a framework of thought and actually to process things and understand how to think about situations rather than what to think. Because one of the biggest things in today's market or any markets in general historically is we don't always have all the information and there's not always a historical precedent. So we're dealing with new information all the time and understanding how to think is one of the the greatest tools we can all have. And so today we're gonna learn a little bit about Grant's history, where he's come from and discuss some of the hot topics of, of the industry today and then learn how Grant's processing those and how you can take those same frameworks to process things in your life and in your financial uh, portfolios and decisions. So Grant, welcome to the show. So excited to have you. Look forward to diving in. Hey, Zach, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Grant, man, before we dive into all of the uh, how to think and what to think and all that sort of stuff, I'd love the audience just to get to spend time getting to know you a little bit. And so if you could share a little bit about how you got started in the industry and some of the the time and experiences you've you've had since uh, starting. Sure. Uh, I'll give you the, the, the potted history and we can dig into whichever bits that you like. I, I was Perfect. in... Um, I've been an, uh, an equity and convertible bond uh, and even Japanese government bond trader for, um, as you say, 35 odd years, um, starting in the mid 80s in the, in the, the height of the Japanese bull market. Uh, and from there, I've lived and worked in New York and Hong Kong and Sydney and Singapore and uh, mostly in equities, um, sometimes in fixed income, uh, convertible bonds. And, um, you know, it's my, my, I've been very fortunate. My job took me all over the world. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of had front row seats to say that the bursting of the Japanese bubble after the, the I saw the last you know couple of years of the craziness and then saw the bubble burst. Um, had a front row seat for the dot com bubble burst when I was working in New York. I was in Hong Kong for SARS. I was in Sydney for the global financial crisis. So I, I'm something of an albatross, I think. So if you if you if you see me coming, you know something bad's going to happen in that neighborhood. <laughs> well, hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna take it as a bad omen. We're gonna. 
we're going to look at it and say, this man has been through a lot. He's experienced a lot and has a wealth of knowledge, wisdom, and firsthand experience that we can uh, learn and grow from. And that's one of the, you know, the exciting things about having you here today is being able to, you know, tap into that wisdom and help those listening and watching be able to utilize that and in their own lives. And so, you know, you mentioned um, the, the bus back in 87. So for, for those who aren't as familiar, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you were relatively early on when that happened. Yeah. Tell us kind of what happened, you know, just a recap there. And then I'd love to hear what was happening in your mind as this is going on and how is that kind of, uh, how did that shape the immediate near term? And then how did that shape and, and grow into the future from there? Yeah, look, it, it was a really, really important event, uh, not just for for markets, but for me personally and in, in my career. Um, and it's funny, you know, if you if you look back at a chart of the Dow Jones um, going back to 1987, as it stands today, you won't even see the 87 crash. You you, you won't be able to see it on the chart. But at the time, you know, the market lost 22 percent in a single trading session. Mm. And when you talk about that possibility today, it, it, people can't even fathom how that could happen. And of course, it, it couldn't happen today and, and it wouldn't happen today. There'd be all kinds of circuit breakers that were put in after that to, to stop it happening. But for, for me as a guy who really had had his own trading book for a little over a year then, I guess, it was, um, it was cataclysmic in the, in, the, in the immediate term. Uh, my, my understanding of what had gone on was way too small. Um, my reaction function to it was way too slow. And fortunately, I had, I had more experienced guys around me who, who helped me to, to kind of stabilize and, and get through that one day, you know, that one day after, because I was working in London at the time, trading Japanese equity markets. So the, the, the Dow Jones did what it did. And then obviously it rippled through Japan overnight. So we woke up at four o'clock in the morning in London to see the Nikkei had fallen a similar amount. And then we had to go in and trade the London market. So we kind of had it three ways. Mm. And um, look, it was, uh, it was bewildering. And, but, but I learned so much just from watching the guys around me, both, the, both the, 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 the way more experienced traders and the guys who were, you know, maybe four or five years ahead of me, but obviously had that experience under their belts. And, and, you know, you realize that when these hack, then when these things happen, you, you don't have a choice. You can't just sit there because you just get run over. So no matter how uh, difficult it is, you have to make decisions. You have to um, come up with a strategy. You have to you know, play offense and defense at the same time. And it's, it's a really difficult thing to do. And, and I think what I really took away from that was the fact that going into it, I realized that my understanding of the broader market, the kind of major cross currents that were affecting markets was nowhere near strong enough. You know, I was focused on 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 a very narrow. I was trading Japanese equity warrants at the time, which were which were crazy because that market was going nuts. So all my focus was on a, a very narrow part of of the global financial system, and uh, and it meant I got caught out. So you know, from then I made sure that I, I not only read as as widely as I could to understand other asset classes, their, their correlations, their interactions, what was happening in kind of obscure parts of, of the financial plumbing, but also history. You know, I'd always been a, a fan of history and I'd always read history. Um, and, it, and that really sent me down a path of trying to learn about financial history more, not, not just kind of human history. And, uh, and that, you know, so that set me on a path that I'm in, incredibly grateful 
for to this day. So I, you know, for me, that that whole experience was nothing but positive, even though the day itself was shocking in the true sense of the word. Uh, you know, that the market recovered reasonably quickly from that, certainly stabilized quickly. Uh, and I and I think the lessons it taught me have stood me in remarkably good stead for the you know for the next thirty odd years. But you know, particularly, uh, say when I look back, that that this idea of trying to stay calm under pressure and realize that what's happened has happened. You can't mm. sit there worrying about it. And also the, learning the lesson that equity markets can lose twenty percent of their value in a day. And once you realize that is a possibility, then you know the, this whole FOMO thing. It doesn't get its hooked since you're nearly as deep as it does if you don't realize those things can happen. Yeah, that's a good point. So, number one, it sounds like you were able to extract that you have the capacity, and we all have the capacity that during tough times, we can call a timeout and actually utilize our skills to go on offense and defense. You rose to a challenge that you weren't ready for. And I'm sure you learned about some resilience you had that you didn't know you had. I'm sure you learned about uh, some capacity inside you that you didn't know you had. But um, you also learned, like you said, about FOMO. So, you know, that's for everyone who's not familiar, the fear of missing out. So we see certain markets that are taking a ride upward and people are, you know, hustling to get inside of it. And I think, Grant, what you're saying is you don't get as bought into the highs and lows. You're looking at things on a bit broader scale and trying to win over time. Is that accurate? Yeah. I, 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 one, one clarification point I make, you know, when you say I rose to the challenge, I, I don't look at it that way at all. I, I felt I was dragged up to that challenge by the people around me. And, and it's, you know, it's an important distinction because mm. I, I say I was fortunate enough to have guys around me who were more experienced than me. And instead of kind of cutting me loose and every man for himself, they realized that I, I, I was inexperienced. They realized that I needed help. I needed guidance. So that idea of being able to count upon the people around you and, uh, you know, in times of stress, be able to ask questions and ask for help is, um, mm. is, is critically, critically important. But, um, yeah, you know, to, to, to your point that, that, that fear of missing out thing is, is very real. And, and it's arguably never been more real than it is right now with so many things uh, at incredibly stretched valuations. And I think, uh, you know, there are people who want to chase the numbers and want to chase the hot stocks and get into the momentum stocks. And that's absolutely fine, right? There's a, it's a great way of, of riding a trend and making money. The, the danger comes not when you're following the momentum, but when you either have too much leverage involved in the trade or you're following the momentum blindly, assuming you can get out. You know, if you're, if you're on one of those trains that's just heading north, you have to constantly be checking around you and looking for reasons why that train might run into a brick wall. Because generally speaking, the more momentum there is behind something, the harder it hits a wall and, and the more dangerous it is on the downside. And we've seen that recently in, um, in the cryptocurrency space, right? I mean, sure. uh, we, we can talk about cryptos all day long, but let's just talk about the price action recently. And you've seen that thing get cut in half in a couple of weeks. Um, and you know the, the stories of all the people who were levered long at sixty thousand who are out. You know, and, and the kind of leverage being offered in the crypto space is enough that you know single-digit percent movements will wipe out your equity in the position. Um, you know, multiple times a day. So it's just a great example of understanding that that, that liquidity um, is important, leverage is important, and you have to make sure that you have a handle on those things at, at any stage in any trade. 
Yeah, that's really good. So, you know, I appreciate you clarifying that. And, you know, that's an important point. And, you know, something that we talk about just as, as business people is having business allies. And we, we like to, rather than try to become the expert at everything, seek out other experts in other fields. So when we're interested in something new, or we're looking at expansion or things of that nature, finding the right experts in those fields to add to your team, because the people around you are so important. And so I think that that's applicable for you know everyday life and also in business and investing. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's an important point. And for everyone watching, I mean, that's something to consider is who are you working with? What does your team look like? And that's part of the preparation that each person should be considering whenever they're weighing their decisions as they move forward. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And look, understand that those good people are tough to find. You know, you make assumptions and you assume you get parachuted into a situation. You assume that everybody around you is good and reliable and solid. It's not always the case. Um, but when you do find those people uh, upon whom you can depend and you can rely and who can who can teach you things, you know, keep them close because uh, that 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 being able to tap into other people's experience is the single greatest shortcut to, to, to kind of broadening your own experience, broadening your own expertise, because it helps you avoid making mistakes. You know, the, if you can learn from mistakes that other people have made, then hopefully when you get faced with those situations, recall that and not make those, or, those mistakes or, or even just recognize them sooner and be able to get yourself out of them. Uh, it's, it's invaluable. It really is. Mm. You know, I, I think my experience has typically been that uh, one blessing we can take away from adversity is it typically reveals who those people are. So yeah. <laughs> like yeah, you're sharing so, with so that true. story, so true. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing that, you know, adversity is typically reveals who those people are. So you'll, you'll see during the hard times, you know, who's going to rise up and come alongside of you. So, you know, there's always incredible things to learn regardless of if it's a good time or bad. And, you know, sometimes the, the hard times produce the, uh, the strongest outcomes as far as, you know, education, team, and uh, growth for, towards the future. So, you know, one thing that Grant and I visited a bit about uh, prior to jumping on the show was that he's seen a lot of different ups and downs in the market. And he's still here. He's still hooking and jabbing. He's still moving. And uh, he shows up with uh, a desire for excellence, you know, every single day and what he's doing. And we're going to dive into some more of that as we move forward. But uh, Grant, I do appreciate that about you. And um, as we kind of move forward, you know, and one of the next uh, things you had shared that you'd been through was really the dot-com crash. And I'd, I'd love to hear some of some of these sequences about how they played out and how, as, as you went through each one, what was different from your vantage point and how you handled those and what you had done prior to that because of your experience. And then maybe uh, how you handled it from a, a, thought framework as you experience those those difficult times? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and I think my third bubble was was the one I, I, I navigated the best. Uh, you know, okay. the Japanese bubble, I was too young and too inexperienced and I, and I knew something wasn't right. It didn't feel right, but the markets were going up every day and, you know, the trading desk was making money every day. And it's so easy to get sucked into that. And 
Yeah. And just think, you know what? It's, it, yeah, it might, it's going to stop at some point, but when it stops, I'll just, you know, it's like you remember those old Bugs Bunny cartoons where the elevator would be falling and bugs would step off the elevator right before it crashed <laughs> into the ground, right? And you figured you'd be able to do that in a, in a, in a crazy market. Just, oh, yeah. As soon as uh, the music stops, I'll just step aside. But of course, it, it just never works like that. And then the, the, the second one of these I saw was the dot com bubble. Um, and, you know, that time around, I, I recognized it for what it was. Uh, I, I wasn't brave enough to to take the action I felt was necessary. I, mm. I, I, I succumbed to that kind of FOMO. Um, I, was, I was in New York. I was at the center of it all, and everyone was, you know, jumping up and down and whooping away. And, and, I, and I remember very clearly being in the, in the line at the kind of cafeteria in the office one day, and I was behind two guys who were with the trays getting their lunch. And one of the guys said to the other one, oh, you know, I see, uh, I see Cisco's down. I was like, Lucent, Lucent's down you know, 7% today. And the other guy literally left his tray and said, oh, man, I've been waiting for a chance to get, get in. And he just left his lunch and ran upstairs to go, you know, there were no mobile phones back then, to go and, mm. you know, call his broker and, and buy his Lucent stock. And I remembered that really, really clearly. And that was a sign for me that things were, were, were getting a bit kind of squirrely. But again, I didn't have I didn't have the guts to sit out. You know, I'd, I'd seen the Japanese equity market. I, I'd, I'd learned what can happen, so I recognised it the second time around. But I hadn't then learned what should I do about it on an individual basis. I was still kind of okay. I see this now. I see that. I see what's happening. I'll be fine. I'll, I'll be able to. I'll be able to do the Bugs Bunny elevator thing. And um, uh, I, I managed to get out quickly enough. But I still got still got my fingers burned on the stove, you know. So yeah. when two thousand seven came around, that one uh, I saw coming a mile away, and um, you know I, I sidestepped that one. I had the right positions on. I had the right shorts on. Uh, it and, and what what I what I was more comfortable with after the previous two experiences was being out early in oh seven and missing out on that last run up in you know into the into the 2008 highs i was okay with that you know it didn't bother me at all that i wasn't participating because i could see what was happening i knew it was a matter of time uh i i didn't know what the catalyst would be and that's something that people need to understand you 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 won't know what the catalyst will be even if there is one red light screaming something the chances are very high that it'll be something else that that kind mm. of tips the basket over and, and uh, you know, we had this, um, this alphabet soup hedge fund go under uh, in 2007. And that was, uh, that was definitely the first kind of siren warning going off that things were, things were coming unglued. So now, you know, when you look around the, the, the landscape now and you see the reverse repo stuff going on, you see the crazy valuations, you see the, the froth in cryptocurrencies, you see the volatility, you see the kind of declining breath, all the signs are there again that uh, we are somewhere near a top. Now, we can bump around here for a while, but as we saw in last March, uh, you know, people will blame COVID for that, for that fall. Sure. That's not yeah. the reality of it. COVID was, right. was, the, was the trigger for that fall, but all the conditions were in place. And what's happened since, with, with all the kind of stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, that's been thrown at the problem, will have emboldened a new generation of people to think, you know, no matter what happens, we're good. No matter what happens, they will get this market back up and, and we can be long and we can use leverage. And, and if it falls, the Fed will step in and have our backs. And again, you know, that, that's right until it's wrong. The, 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 the 
the problem and the big lesson I learned early in my career is, you know, those huge drawdowns will kill you. If you mm. take a big drawdown, um, you, you're behind such an enormous eight ball that it makes things very, very difficult to catch up. So of all the things that I would caution your your viewers and listeners to watch out for, it's, it's you, you must avoid those big, big drawdowns. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, that was that was a quote I actually wrote down from you was that avoiding big drawdowns are the single most important thing an investor can do. And to me, yeah. I mean, other people yeah. will say something different, but to me, I just think generally speaking, those big drawdowns come, uh, and I'm not talking in a single stock because obviously anything can happen in a single stock, but in a portfolio, those big drawdowns tend to come when you're either too concentrated, you're too levered, uh, or you're not paying attention to to conditions, and so you know, I think if you have money invested in the market, um, if you're if you're if you're kind of shepherding it yourself, then you have to understand what a commitment that is. It's 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 fine being a day trader, but if you are investing your own portfolio, uh, there are reason there are hundreds of thousands of people around the world for whom that is a full time profession. So if you're you know if you have a, a day job and you're managing your portfolio. I can't stress enough how much attention you have to pay to what's going on to make sure you 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 don't get blindsided and suffer you know a 30 40 50% drawdown because to get back you know, you've got to make 100% if you lose half your money to get back to where you were before making 100% is not easy. So you know I think there are plenty of things you have to avoid but to me those big drawdowns are um are number one. Hmm. Yeah and and I really think it's a good time to maybe transition to where we're at today because you brought up some good points, right? I mean, over the last year, we had the trigger, right, from COVID, but it wasn't COVID that caused the problem. It was just a trigger that where the all the situation was already set up, right? And then here we are, and really, we've just taken that system and exacerbated it, right? And now, we, now we're here over 12 months later. The markets are at new all-time highs, right? The, the price to earnings have gone up drastically over what we've seen, you know, historically. And um, we're in a position where I think everybody's kind of asking the question of, well, what do we do next? You know, where else can we go? And so I'd love to hear maybe a little bit about how you process these types of decisions. Like what's the framework that your mind is working through? Well, I think, look, I think the framework, it's important to understand that investing is is the business of of making a guess about a completely unknowable future right that's it none of us know the future um those who do that's called insider trading so it doesn't it doesn't it's frowned <laughs> upon uh, at least it used to be i'm not sure if it is anymore but um we're all trying to guess an uncertain future it's that simple so you you have to understand going in that the deck is stacked against you you the, the, to get an edge in an unknowable future is impossible but that just means that before you before you make any investment, you need to understand why you're doing it. You need to understand what you hope is going to happen, how this is going to play out. And you need to know what could invalidate the thesis behind your investment and, and constantly monitor those things. Because if you're buying something because you know, a friend's told you it's going up, that's one thing, right? That's a stock tip. You're going to take your friend's tip and presumably rely on him to tell you when to get out, which is nine times out of ten the day after you should have done. But that's that's <laughs> you live and learn. But if you look, if you if let's talk about inflation, deflation. You mentioned that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, this debate right now to me is arguably the most important thing that every investor has to consider. And none of us know what the answer is. None of us know whether our future is inflation, deflation, whether this is transitory or not. We don't know, except the Fed. The Fed know everything, of course. They know it's transitory. Um, so if you have a portfolio that has performed well over the last 10 years, the chances are it is a portfolio that has been set up in a way that will favor a deflationary environment, because that's the environment we've had. You know, bond prices have been very strong. Yes, we've seen equity prices go up. You know, risk parities work very well. But let's, let's throw this idea of inflation into the mix and acknowledge that we don't know if this is going to continue. Uh, and there are very, very smart people who will tell you that it won't. You know, Dave Rosenberg and Lacey Hunt, both good friends of mine, both supremely smart guys, um, have forgotten more than I'll ever know, will tell you with great conviction that our future remains deflationary and that this inflation is transitory. So that information is incredibly useful to me. So I'll take that information from two guys whose opinions I value enormously, and then I'll start putting in other things. I'll start putting in what I see. I'll start putting in anecdotal evidence that I hear. I'll start putting in the thoughts of other people I trust who are on the other side. So Russell Napier being a great example, another good friend who has been in the deflation camp for 20 years and um, late last year kind of switched and said, you know what, I think this is it. I think we are going to see inflate, meaningful inflation in the next 12 months. So I'm going to synthesize all that information. And then it's, look, it's up to me to decide what I think is the likely future. But more importantly, what do I need to do for me, depending on what I think is, is in my future? If I believe deflation is still the path, if I, if I think Rosie and Lacey are right, then my portfolio is probably okay. It'll need tweaking here and there, but it's more likely that, that what's, what's performed okay so far will continue to perform okay. If I think that either Russell's right or the data points that I'm seeing are right or the anecdotal evidence or, or just you know talking to people in the street who run real world businesses, what, what struggles are they facing? Are they struggling to get finished goods? Are their input costs going up? You know, all this stuff is incredibly valuable, but it's, it's on me to, to make that decision. And, and you know, I've, I've come down on the side of inflation, but here's where you get to another critical input, which is time horizon. If I'm looking at yep. trading for the next month, inflation's probably not my concern. If I'm looking at trading on a three to five year view, then A, I think inflation becomes a much bigger problem. And, and B, I realize that if that is my time horizon, then inflation, the way my portfolio is set up, is gonna cause me some major, major heartache. So you know, then you have to figure out, okay, what do I do? How do I need to reconstitute uh, my portfolio to protect me from the kind of ravages that inflation will cause if I'm right? Once you've done that and you've adjusted your portfolio and you've trimmed some of the things that you think won't work if we go into inflation, you've added things you think will, then it becomes a constant state of monitoring. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Is Lacey right? Is Dave right? I'm going to keep reading those guys every chance I get and, and, and understand their latest thinking. What signs are they seeing that confirms their point of view? And when I, when I read those signs and I, and I read their analysis on it, does that change my own analysis? Um, and it's, look, it's, trust me, being on the other side of an inflation trade to Lacey Hunt and Dave Rosenberg is the scariest place you can be because <laughs> those guys are brilliant. But like I said, my time horizon is different to theirs. 
my anecdotal inputs are different to theirs. My potential damage, if they're right, is different to theirs. So, you know, it, it, this idea of responsibility for your portfolio is, is a really important thing to understand. You know, it's okay to, to have a, a manager look after your money, but that's a constant dialogue. You know, what's he thinking? How is he investing your money? It, what does he think about inflation, deflation? Is he think the same as you? If, if you think differently to him, uh, it's very easy to say, oh, well, he's the professional. Um, I'm just going to let him go with it. But be rigorous about it. You know, challenge him. Understand why he's different to you. And if you really come down on another side to this guy, then, you know, that's something you need to think about. Because what it means is you've got someone investing your money whose outlook you don't necessarily agree with. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be because, mm-hmm. you know, if he's, if he's right, okay, great. But if he's wrong, um, you're going to be kicking yourself for a long time for not having the courage to, you know, to either challenge him a bit more on it or having the guts to say, you know, I, I just don't feel like this is the right way to invest right now. So th- this idea of responsibility, weighing up critical inputs, understanding your time horizon, investing accordingly, and then constantly, constantly rechecking your your uh, framework is is just so important to learn. Yeah, that, that's that's really good wisdom. You know, couple couple points. One thing was the question you said is. Once you arrive at a stance, now the continuous question from there is, am I wrong yeah. or what's changed? Right. Or has it has has thing have things changed? And that continuous dialogue is extremely important. So anybody that's out there, you know, with a stance, finding ways to break your own argument is one that is is a practice that's very healthy. And um, then if there is somebody managing your money, like you mentioned, having these conversations with them is extremely extremely important as well. And so I think there's a, there's a large part, you know, of the country and people that have placed their money with, you know, advisors at some point, and then they maybe haven't met with them in years, right? It's just been set it and forget it. And it's not to say that where you're at currently is wrong, but it's always important to know where you're at and why you're there. And that continuous discussion is one that should, uh, always be be had. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so you mentioned that right now you feel that inflation is one in which is the battle that we'll, we'll be moving towards. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I feel that's the thing that could hurt me the most. Yeah. And, and, and the more evidence I see that, that, that the chances of inflation taking hold are increasing, then the chance of the damage that that can wreak on my portfolio increases. And so it's something that I feel I need to mitigate. And there are, as I say, there are people who believe it's transitory, are happy to just let this pass and, um, and wait for things to settle down again. I, I just think for me, as I said, over, over the medium to longer term, I don't, I don't think that what happens from here ultimately in five years' time is going to be five more years of deflation. I appreciate that. You know, uh, understanding time frame. It's always important to understand the context in which somebody else is visiting with you about, right? So, you know, if they're talking about one thing or the other, under what time frame? The context is so important. I appreciate you making that distinction. Um, you know, that is that is a discussion that is continuing to be had. And then, you know, if anybody in the audience hasn't seen uh, Grant's discussion in his series on the end game, um, we'll put a link to it. Uh, we'll just put that right up here. And so you guys can go check that out, but it's a, it's a great discussion about the end game of how things uh, will continue to progress. And so Grant, we share a little bit on that discussion and um, kind of 
uh, segue into what you guys arrived at in that discussion? Well, look, the beauty of it is we haven't arrived anywhere. It's an ongoing discussion. You know, <laughs> yeah, and that was the point. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, we set out to talk about the end game. Um, but what we quickly realized, Bill and I, was that the end game is, is you know, a great title for the podcast, but what we're looking for is, is what's next, uh, the transition next. from the current environment to whatever comes next. And so that, you know, those conversations have been trying to investigate that on as many different lines as we can. We've, we've, we've had the inflation deflation debate. We've talked about volatility. We've talked about, um, you know, um, capital controls. We've talked about repression. We've talked about all, all kinds of things. Um, and that's, that's, I think, an important thing for people to do is, is, to, is to understand the multiple different pathways that we can travel down from here and understand that the number of critical inputs that will affect the path that we end up traveling down. And all of these things have something to say. You know, volatility has a tremendous um, say in the outcome, uh, as does government policy, as does geopolitics. You know, all of these things, which are totally ephemeral, you can't, you can't really capture them, but you know they're there. You know they're a constant threat to the status quo. And as, as the kind of the, the, the current monetary system reaches its kind of creaking uh, end with so much debt saddled on the world, what happens is most likely to be some kind of reset of some kind. And again, you know, if you if you read financial history, you'll see that this it sounds like a huge deal for us sitting here today because we're at the tail end of you know fifty odd years since the last reset, which is the Bretton Woods uh, agreement back in 1945. So we're at the tail end of a monetary system, one that we've grown up our entire lives. But if you, if you were 15 years old in World War II, then when you were 16, the monetary system was reset. Yeah. And if you were 16 then, you were 31 in 1971 when the gold peg was removed by Nixon and the monetary system changed again. So you, someone who was coming of age in those times saw two monetary system resets in the space of, of, of 20 odd years, uh, 25 years. So it, it's very easy to get comfortable with a, a system that is around us every day and functions without us really ever questioning how and why and, and what inputs go into making it function. But these things do have a finite lifespan. You know, the, the average fiat currency has lasted 30 years over, over the course of history. We just happen to be at the end of, a, as I said, a 50-year run here. Doesn't mean to say it'll last forever. Doesn't mean to say it'll end tomorrow but we are reaching the outer limits of that. And if you're looking carefully, you understand the problems that, um, that enormous debt burdens place on governments, uh, particularly in a time like this where tax revenues are falling. You read history and you understand what happens in those cases. Those holes have to be filled and you can start trying to fill them initially by increased bond sales and that works for a while until people want a higher interest rate for the for lending you more money because they've seen that you're you know, fiscally imprudent. So we're now at a point where the US is $23 trillion of debt. There's $8 trillion on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, the biggest budget deficits we've seen in our lifetime. How are they going to fill that hole? And everyone assumes that they'll just be able to sell as many bonds as they want at effectively zero cost to investors. And the ones that the, the investors won't buy, the Fed will just take those. And everything will be fine. And it might. Hey, it might. But if you've read history and you've seen how these episodes tend to end, 
that will tell you that it probably won't be fine. And all the kind of soothing words that the Federal Reserve governors who were out five of them a day at the moment giving speeches to, to calm everybody's nerves and tell you how they've got this under control, everybody had it under control. You know, Rudolf von Havenstein, the governor of the Reichsbank back in Weimar, Germany, he had it under control until they had 10,000% inflation. Um, and the speed with which these things happen once they begin will take your breath away. There's a couple of books that uh, I, I recommend people read. Um, there's a couple about hyperinflation as the past. One is called The Dying of Money by Jens O. Parsons. Um, the book's long out of print. You can find a copy for like several thousand dollars. But if you go to the website of the Von Mises Institute, they have a PDF of the book on their site. You can find that. Uh, the other one is When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson. That one you can buy, but there's also PDFs available in the internet. And both of those will give you a real understanding of, of how inflation can happen really quickly. And whilst I'm not in any way predicting that we're going to have hyperinflation in America or the UK or Australia or Canada anytime soon, because of the size of the debt burden and because of the starting point of zero, we don't need double-digit interest rates to cause an enormous problem. We need 5% right. interest rates and the game's over. So understanding what happened in previous episodes will really help educate you about how this could possibly go from here. And the, and the other book that, again, I, I bore myself to death recommending it, but it's just a tremendous book, is The Lords of Finance by Liaquat Ahmed, which tells the story of the, of the big four central bankers of the world between the world wars. And um, again, you, you read these books and you, you don't need any help. You'll piece together the, the similarities with today on your own. And it, it, it will really open your eyes to the kind of possibilities that you don't have to assume will happen, but you have to know can happen and have a plan for. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing those resources. We'll make sure that they're down in the show notes. Everybody has access to them. We'll find some, some options to share that out. So I appreciate you sharing that. You know, having that endless discussion, I think is a theme that uh, has continued to come up. So, you know, like you guys said in your in-game series, it's a discussion of all the options, right? And the one thing yep. is, is there's, it's a continuous moving game because even though we have historics in certain things, there's variables because there's a human element to all the decisions that are being made at the, the federal government level and at a global level. And all of those decisions have a lot of correlation that can change and trigger things in different areas. And, and so playing out those variety of options and finding a way to uh, prepare yourself for a variety of options and staying uh, in tune and in touch is incredibly important. And, you know, that's why guys, you know, that's why we do this show. And that's why Grant has uh, puts out incredible education. If you guys haven't connected with him. He has an incredible podcast, incredible YouTube channel, and a series of newsletters that you can uh, get in touch with. We'll make sure that we share all the resources for that. Um, but the continuous dialogue and, and being willing and open to look at things not emotionally, but in a way that understanding these things can happen and we would prepare for them and be prudent and wise to spend time having the discussion and preparation. And so, Grant, I, I appreciate you taking the time to share some of those frameworks with us today and um, look forward to being able to dive into some more material uh, with you and the material that you've shared. And so, you know, kind of before we sign off, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about um, those channels where people can plug into you and get connected for, for more information. Sure. Yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's really nice and simple now. I've, I've 
finally, after many years of putting it off and putting it off, I've, I've finally sorted my website out. So if you go to- um, There we go. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, grant-williams.com, you'll find the podcast there. You'll find um, my writing there. Um, and it's all in one place. There's a, there's a lot of videos. Some of my f- uh, previous presentations are on there as well. And um, I'm on Twitter, TTMYGH, which is, if you can't remember, is the acronym for things that make you go, oh, it's nice and simple. I'm very easy to find in, in two places only. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, we'll make sure everybody, the links are up here and everybody has access to that. And, you know, before we sign off, I wanted to bring up, you know, one thing as, as we've been talking about a lot of different scenarios, right? And everybody's kind of always, always asking the question, well, like, what do you do? Well, what's going to be best? You know, one thing that um, I've heard you share, and this is something that I appreciate is, is understanding the relationship between different asset classes and different industries. And uh, a point that you've made in the past that I appreciate is one thing to evaluate is how things perform against other assets. So when things are moving in different directions, um, you know, you had mentioned, you know, in the past, you know, um, uh, you'd mentioned in the past that, you know, one thing that you like is gold. And there's a discussion is, you know, at one point you'd moved into gold and um, things had dropped off in the S&P and, um, Everybody said, well, gold dropped too, but it didn't drop in the same relationship, right? So whenever we're looking at hedging risk and what Granted shared is one of his positions being that the best thing you can do is avoid massive uh, drops in your portfolio is asking the question as you're preparing, it's how can I put myself in a position where based off of these scenarios and these potential outcomes, where can I move money into? Where can I invest in a way that's going to help maintain value when other things may lose. And so if you could just kind of touch on that real quick before we jump off, I think that'd be something that is an important consideration because we're not just looking at what stock is it or what industry is it, but how how things are performing on a wide scale. Sure. Yeah. I, I think the, the example you're talking about was a conversation I was having someone about gold and we were talking about um, gold as a, as a hedge, as a liquidity reserve, and the point I was making is that everybody fixates on the price of gold. And every, the question mm. everybody wants to know is, what's the price of gold going to be? Is it going to go to two and a half thousand? Is it going to go to three, five, ten? Where is it going to go? And you know, I've owned gold in various percentages of my portfolio since uh, the early two thousands, and um, it's performed tremendously well. But the price is really not what I'm looking at as as a barometer. And and we talked about two thousand eight and the fact that. Gold fell, you know, in the initial stages of 2008, uh, post Lehman, the gold price fell, and um, you know, the, the the point was made that well, how, how's that a hedge for your portfolio? And if you understand what happened there, people were selling their gold to pay for the losses that they actually suffered elsewhere in their equity portfolios or their bond portfolios, for example. So the the, the gold did its job. Um, but then I, I made the point that you know, going into September 15th, 2008, uh, an ounce of gold would buy, and I forget the numbers now, but it would buy, let's say, three units of the S&P. Um, and yes, the gold price fell. But the fact that the S&P fell 60-odd percent meant that same ounce of gold would buy you almost 60% more units of the S&P. So even though the price fell, people were disappointed with the price. If you think of it as a liquidity reserve and you then deploy that liquidity, you are able to uh, exchange it for 65% more of the, the, the other unit that you're trying to compare it with. So you know, I think that's 
a really good example of how to think about something like gold as as a liquidity reserve, as a form of uh, cash that you can deploy in times of stress. And and it's really the purchasing power that's the most important. It's not necessarily the price of that unit itself. And and those you know those correlations hold across all kinds of things. You know if you if you right. if you were long volatility, if you had an investment in a volatility fund, you know my great friend Steve Diggle in in um, Singapore. Had a fund called Artradis, which was uh, which was long volatility and short credit going into uh, the financial crisis, and of course that was a hedge for people, which for the previous number of years had basically kind of bombed along doing nothing when everyone was making fortunes in all their other portfolios. But as a hedge, when when the time came and the markets collapsed, that fund performed incredibly well. But because it performed incredibly well, the guys had huge redemptions. Because people came to them and said, "Right, our hedge has paid out. We want to redeem." So it was it was perfect. You know, the 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 fund had maximum redemptions at the high watermark because it had done exactly what it was supposed to do, mm. and and offset the losses elsewhere. So so having that understanding that it's not always about price; it's about what something does for your portfolio and what it offers you in terms of purchasing power. I think is a really, really important thing to understand. All right, Grant. I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It's been incredible having you diving into all these different topics and um, so appreciative of your time. And I know our audience will be thankful for everything you've shared today. So other than that, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Solomon Investor Podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time and have a blessed day. All right, guys, here comes the thanks and the shout outs. We want to thank everyone that leaves reviews and the written reviews on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms. Just know they mean the world to us. If you've taken the 30 to 60 seconds, you know, extra seconds to show love and to give context of why this has been worthwhile for you and why this podcast has helped you, we thank you. We're going to give a couple shout outs of our favorite reviews each podcast. So please give us some love with a five-star review and thank you for joining the Solomon Investor Revolution.